All right, welcome back everyone to Complexity Unpacked with Professor G. I have a special guest for you today, a former student of mine and a current RCMP officer stationed out in Alberta. So this one will be back to our uh, Profiles in Justice segment. Uh, and obviously the, you can watch, the, if you're watching this video, you're probably watching it on my YouTube channel, Complexity Unpacked. But you can also listen to the audio version of it on my Complexity Unpacked podcast that is available on Spotify, Apple, and Anchor. And for those of you that like social media, you can follow me on Instagram at Professor Consalvis, where I usually post updates about what's coming up on my website. And uh, you can look at my website at uh, www.nconsalvis.ca, where I've posted a bunch of resources for students, um, as well as interviews with uh, key members of uh, the community to really enhance our experience as a law enforcement community writ large. So without further ado, uh, Constable Peters, welcome. I uh, it's going to take a little while uh, because I always called you by your first name, but uh, welcome and thank you for being here. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a very long time since we've spoken. Um, mm -hmm. I I do remember that you were an, uh, a graduate student at Durham College uh, in my advanced law enforcement investigations program, and during that time, I I heard a little bit about uh, sort of things you've done and your journey to policing. Uh, so thank you for being here. I appreciate You're it. You're welcome. My pleasure. <laughs> the, the intent for everyone who's listening, we're, we're going to split this into two segments. So, you know, you're going to hear me introduce Sharon all over again uh, for the second segment. But we're going to talk a little bit about some of your experiences prior to policing. Uh, more specifically, uh, some of the work you did in India with uh, bonded uh, slave labor and things like that. And then in our second segment, when we're back with Sharon, we'll be talking about women in policing and her experiences with the RCMP. So for this part one of Complexity Unpacked, uh, modern slavery, um, it's a concept that, you know, perhaps is not familiar to everybody. And uh, I was just looking at the book you gave me back when you were a student of mine, uh, mm -hmm. and it was a, a difficult read. Um, it's challenging, you know, as is most things that are nonfiction and things that seemingly are far away from us. So I'm going to open this segment, if you don't mind, Sharon, by reading a, reading a little bit from uh, the beginning of Chapter 7, which was titled Body Crushing Toll. And then perhaps you'll mm -hmm. help us put that in context. Yeah. So the chapter opens with, in the fall of 2003, National Geographic brought to the attention of the world the hidden reality of modern slavery. The magazine made the case that there are approximately 27 million slaves in our world today. Not metaphorical slaves but actual slaves. That's more slaves in our world today than were extracted from Africa during 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade. Many of these slaves are held in South Asia, and I have met hundreds of them. Such slavery is completely against the law, as is child sex slavery in Cambodia. But the poor frequently don't get the benefits of law enforcement, and so millions of them find themselves in slavery. That was an mm -hmm. excerpt from the book, Terrify No More by Gary Hagen, uh, which you gave me as a gift. And I believe it was written by somebody that worked intimately with the organization you were part of. So mm -hmm. why don't we open with, can you contextualize that little bit I just read for, for my listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So the number actually, like the 27 million now in 2022, they're estimating it's upwards of 40 million modern day slaves. Um, the man, Gary Haugen, who started the International Justice Mission, um, he was sent to Rwanda in 1994 with the U.S. State Department. And his whole job during that time after was to count bodies. 
he literally went through mass graves to try and figure out um, the number of people that were murdered during that genocide. Uh, when he returned back to the state, I mean, you can imagine being in knee deep in graves. Um, it doesn't matter who you are or what walk of life you come to, they come from. Really, uh, even to experience your first like dead body to like hundreds of thousands is quite traumatic, right? So. For him, he returned to the States and couldn't go back to his job. He felt like there was this need um, across the world, especially in impoverished countries uh, where, like poor, like you said, poor people just aren't given the same treatment. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking in modern day right now, what are, we, what, are we, what are we facing? We see these convoy, the truck protests that are going on. Um, we've heard about Epstein trial. We've heard all the controversy and they're saying they can't reveal names and you know, there's so much stuff going on out there and you really start to wonder, for me, in the last week, I've been thinking a lot about money and power and how that plays into justice. Um, and so, as far as India goes, um, or South Asia in particular, it's where I was posted um, following a university. I spent a, a year working alongside the International Justice uh, Mission, the team there. And our work was particularly rescuing people from bonded slavery. So what's bonded slavery? Um, pretty straightforward, or like, I'll make it as easy as I can here. Um, it's basically people have taken a loan of some sort, and quite often for a wedding or maybe a funeral, um, for a child's education, and then in exchange for that loan, they take it from like a local money lender. So really like the, the man in the village who has a lot of money. Um, in exchange for that, they end up having to work for him. And so the people that I worked alongside and uh, we pulled out of these situations, usually worked in brick kilns, in rice mills, and rock quarries, um, places where labor is needed, right? Physical labor. Mm -hmm. um, the hard part was that often they're not treated fairly. A lot of these people can't read. They can't do basic math. So they take, a, let's say, a $10,000 loan for our pro purposes. Um, and there's a ledger. And he says, now that you are working for me, like, this is how long it'll to pay it off right. so to you and i we'd be able to figure that out okay six months we got this paid. Right. well someone who can't do math or who maybe can't read or write um is easily taken advantage of and so instead of having deductions for hours worked or the jobs completed they would instead be charged interest so lots of the people that we worked with actually moved like their families into a, a rice mill compound um mm -hmm. because making rice is actually a very like complex process. It takes hours and it works around the clock, um, from harvesting to drying to pounding, all the different things they do. It's not like you can't do it eight to four in a given workday. Right. So they often uh, live in these facilities and work around the clock. And then mm -hmm. the the owner would give them like a bag of rice for their family for the week. But instead of that being what we most of us would consider um, just a fair thing for a boss to do to give you some food they would then charge them for the money for the food so instead of their like loan ever going down from 10,000 next thing it's 15 and then they're given a little bit of money to go and get some milk from the little store or whatever and that's just charged and charged um, and lots of these people end up in these uh, rice mills for decades um, so that's like a brief overview of what it looks like um, in, in India in particular, and I can speak to that because that's where I lived and worked, um, with the team there, bonded slavery was abolished in the 70s, in 1976. 
Um, it comes back to having the training for police officers and for government officials to enforce that. Now, you have to understand in a lot of countries around the world, um, money speaks more than just about anything, right? So let's say you're a wealthy owner of a, of a wealthy business, and you give money to your local police department to add a new addiction. Right. Well, they might hear some rumblings that something fishy is going on at your place, and maybe people don't want to be working in there. Um, but they're going to look the other way because that's where their funding came from, right? So, so you know, uh, I think we opened with, uh, and I and I appreciate that we opened with a clear definition. Because I think my first question is how are we defining slavery in the modern context. Uh, you yeah. spoke to you spoke to the prevalence, which you know the book you gave me was is now dated. It's almost twenty years old. Um, you yeah. know, so or at least the reference, the stat I was referencing was almost twenty years old. So, you know, the problem is increase, not decrease, which, you know, obviously will beg the question that I will ask later. Why are we still going in that trajectory and sort of how is the efforts not helping? Uh, and I, I don't imagine that answer is simple. Uh, but let, let, me, let me just go back for a bit just to contextualize it, because sometimes the other side of the world, while the world mm -hmm. is shrinking and I have more and more yeah. students from more countries, that seems like a faraway land. And I, I always like to point out that India, contrary to popular belief, is one of the largest economies in the world uh, by mm -hmm. most standards, by most measures. It is a superpower. It is a nuclear power. These, this is, it's an advanced industrial society. Um, and yet, the diversity of experience mm -hmm. amongst the population is, is a challenging one to understand. So let me mm -hmm. come back to you and ask you, what took you to India in the first place? Why India? Mm -hmm. How did you end up there? And you mentioned you went there after university. So how's that leap? Yeah. How did you make that leap? For sure. Yeah. Thanks for getting me back on track. I was going on. <laughs> um, okay. So I graduated with a criminal justice degree. And my idea was that I'd be in some sort of international law. So my background a little bit is my parents were missionaries in Africa. And so I had this idea, like, I have lived on the other side of the world, um, and for me, I just had a real pull in my heart to continue to help um, champion the cause of justice in different parts of the world where they just need some assistance, I guess. Um, specifically with uh, India, it was just part of the process. So I applied to be an intern with the International Justice Mission to do an investigations internship. And so originally, like, I really wanted to go back to Africa. Um, I was born in Zambia in the southern part of Africa, and so a lot of my heart is there, um, but they have internships all over. So when I kind of described, like, I wanted to do some sort of modern-day slavery or human trafficking work, at that time in Africa, they were doing more land um, property rights with widows um, and that kind of work. And so they suggested, like, the organization themselves suggested South Asia for me. Okay. So... I had no experience um, or no background knowledge really than what I've seen or like my friends that I have that are from there. Um, but India is like one of the coolest places. It definitely is a country that I feel like anyone who loves to travel should go. Um, it's a country that is just vibe. Like you said, it's like a vibrating place and the culture and the food and the people are amazing. Um, but there is this crazy like, dichotomy of rich and poor and i don't think i was really even prepared for what that looked like right so, like, so you were born in africa but where did you grow up so i lived in africa till i was six and then right. grew up in in ontario london ontario okay is where okay. my family is yeah so that, that's a big jump i mean 
arguably yeah. we don't remember a great deal before we were six. I'm sure there are some memories. So you essentially grew up in North America and then your first experiences post-university in India. Uh, I do have a lot of international listeners and I do have a lot of, uh, you know, foreign students, international students here. So why don't you share with us, uh, India is a big country. Where specifically yeah. were you? Absolutely. I was in Chennai in uh, the south on uh, okay. the coast and I traveled all over. So we have several different field offices there and I got to go to Mumbai, I went to Bangalore and Calcutta. And then with my friends um, that I met that I worked with, so we work with a national staff and there was usually about six to eight interns at any given time. And okay. so my work friends, like they took us in like family and they wanted us to experience their culture and all that it had to offer. So I got to like travel all over on trains, um, by motorbike, lots of people yeah. drive around on motorcycle. The second time, so I actually went to India twice. Right. And the second time was after I finished my program with you, the advanced law enforcement. Um, I went back and that time I drove a scooter. And let me tell you, there's nothing more terrifying than driving a scooter in India. <laughs> but yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Also, you know, uh, being a constable here in Canada, you would uh, not appreciate the value of, what do they call it? Filtering? When you get between, it's illegal for our motorcycles to go between cars. But that's just yeah. common practice there, right? Common. Yeah. 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 No, it's, anyways, I mean, we could talk about that for a long time. I've visited, um, I've visited uh, several times, but not to work. And so, you know, I would argue I probably enjoyed the other side of it. Uh, yeah. But there's so much, there's so much to know. So it's fair to assume from your comments that you worked with the diverse staff of locals as well as missionaries yeah. that came from elsewhere. Would that be fair? Yeah. Yeah, very and much what, so. What was that experience like working with both people from India uh, in Chennai or wherever it is that you were specifically yeah. stationed uh, and having that team? How was that? Uh, what was the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The dynamic. Uh, the dynamic. Yeah, the dynamic. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I mean, before I went, one of the things my dad said to me um, was, don't just hang out with other interns. Get to know your national staff. Go to local establishments. Get to know people. Because that's how you experience the culture. And that was some of the best advice I got. Because a lot of the people, the other interns that I worked with, um, were American or from the UK and all over. And our natural thing we do as humans is we like to stick to what we know. Right, it's hard to actually like strike out of the norm and try new foods and all of that that comes with it. So, in my office in particular, like uh, both experiences, both times I went to India were different, um, but both were wonderful in their own way. Sure, there are dynamics that you have to work through. I'm much more of a um, like I'm assertive, but not to the point of like like I don't want to conflict. I don't want to cause people to feel uncomfortable. I'm more of a team based personality and so that was very effective working with like in my direct team my boss was a former police officer from the state and then uh, and she was a female and then we had all male investigators and my second time there we had two females so it was pretty cool and also very different right and there are times that you learn to keep your mouth quiet and there are times that you learn to speak up and the cool thing with IJM is like, it's a family organization. It's how it felt on the field for me. My team okay. worked really well together. So uh, we didn't have these big blow-ups. Some of the other teams did, and you would hear about them. Um, but it's just working with people in general. It doesn't matter where you're from, right? There's always going to be some conflict. But um, my approach to that, and I've taken that into my policing job now, um, is to understand before 
like fighting to be understood. So I've really tried to um, stop myself from being aggressive at times. There are times to be aggressive, right? Uh, especially in policing when we're arresting people, there are times. Right. <laughs> but in, as far as inter-policy or conflict within the office, um, it really helps to just talk one-on-one and then as a group. And I think even now in my office, um, I'm a peer-to-peer coordinator, and that's one of the things I do. So we have conflict in police stations all the time. Sure. And uh, I'm one of the people that will help connect other officers or our office staff or municipal employees to, like, say people need to speak to counselors or um, they're looking for direction with the grievance process or whatever, the disciplinary process. Right. I'm just an extra resource now. Simply right. because that's something that I value, right? Um, it's, in your, it's in your nature. Yeah, so it is. <laughs> we have been uh, chatting with Constable Peters, who's out in Alberta today. Uh, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we will explore a little bit more about the details of the work she did. Uh, we're talking about slavery in a modern context. We're talking about her time in India, uh, specifically um, with IJM, working with bonded slave labor. Uh, Constable Peters sort of outlined a definition, if you will, in our first segment there on what modern slavery looks like and how it might be different from some preconceived notions we have of it. Uh, We talked about how this can still exist in a modern society, uh, and we're talking about some of the implications of power and money and subjugation. So when we come back, uh, we're going to dive into what this work actually looked like. So stay with us, and we will be right back. Welcome back. Uh, We've been chatting with uh, Constable Peters out in Alberta, and we've been talking about her time before policing. And I think it's relevant to a lot of my student listeners, uh, especially those of you that are aspiring to go into policing. Uh, You will hear a lot about the need to be involved. And, uh, you know, I talk about this in class a lot. It's not enough to check a checkbox. You have to be passionately involved in the things you believe in, uh, because people will see through that, right? Just doing community service because someone told you to surely can't have uh, a tremendous amount of intrinsic value, and I would argue it's probably not sustainable. But let's get back to the question at hand, and uh, you know, when we get to the end of the segment, maybe you can share some advice for students. But uh, let's get right into it. So we've talked a little bit about why um, or how slavery is enabled in this day and age. Tell me a little bit about the work, the actual work sure. you were doing on the ground there. Yes, absolutely. So each field office at IGM does different work. So the office that I was working in did bonded labor work. And my specific role in that office was to work with investigations. So our investigators are national staff um, that come from a variety of backgrounds, but basically they're the ones that go and do all the groundwork, right? So they meet with people, they get information. Um, My role as an intern was to take the information when they return to the office. We put them in documents, like the the investigators would put all their notes together, and then I would help build a case folder, a case package. 
and make sure that we have crossed off all of the things um, needed for a bonded labor charge or for us to like have the ground to get right. our legal team and our government relations team to um, put together the package so that we can go with the government officials to rescue people. So this would be a good time for me to interrupt. I just want to, you know, sort of give some legal context here. So you said you're putting together a case. What is the authority that is dealing with this? So where are you taking this case and whose authority are you dealing with uh, when yeah. you're sort of coordinating this, uh, this effort? So this is within India. This is within their own um, Indian case law, their own court system. So the national staff does all the work um, and we assist. Right. So a big part of my job, like in India is an English colony. And so the court system is very much in English. And when you have people that speak all different dialects and come from different backgrounds within a country, um, trying to make it in a cohesive document that flowed for court, that was a big part of my role. Um, and then we have like a legal team with uh, legal fellows that would come from the US, the UK, Canada, that would assist our lawyers within the country um, on how to do, um, put the legal case together, how to fight it in the court system within the laws of that country. Right. So how, uh, receptive were the authorities to your efforts? I mean, was this a well-functioning system or what were the challenges with doing the work and sort of, because to your point earlier, there is a level of awareness. Surely something at this right. scale is not unknown. So how yes. does that, how does that flow? So when I was there in 2009, 2010, and then 2011, 2012, um, IJM was definitely getting traction within the country, and we were became, becoming a more well-known organization. Um, we were in a few situations with, where there were some dicey moments, absolutely, but um, in, like our big role right now within the country is structural transformation. That was always the goal, was that the country would enact their laws would act on them, would do their own rescue operations without us. And I believe they're at kind of at a transition now because it's been over 10 years since I was there. Um, but during that time, we were still like really laying a lot of ground. And while I was there, one of the largest rescue operations was conducted where we pulled out 500 people out of a, a brick kiln of bonded slave labor. And the, the trial that went forth from there took years, but eventually he was convicted. And what I found out later was like he had done this three times. He had had people taken from him. Then he went and found more uh, laborers and did it again and did it again. And this is their third operation. So it's very interesting. Like for me now to look back, like I don't know what their numbers are anymore, but I just know like that when I lived there um, to see some of those early days, those building blocks and the work that was being done was pretty neat uh, within the country. Um, yes. IJM was respected, but there's always that, um, you can take off like people, different people come into power at different times, right? And they yep. may not like what we're doing. But my experience at that time was uh, it went well. We had a few moments where, you know, we rescue these people from a brick kiln and we're at a government office where they're going to give their story. So we would have their information, but then they had to then go and tell a government official um, basically their testimony, right? So it's like anyone coming here to a police station. That's basically what we were doing there, but having it with a government official. Right. Because that person could grant them release and give right. them a release certificate, which then right. stated that they never had, like, their debt was paid in full. They never had to go back there. That owner had nothing over them. So, 
So the original contract, was that something that was legal in the first place? Uh, or is this something that we would think of more in terms of loan sharking, where you're lending people money off the books and so you're creating yeah. your own standards? Is, is that a fair representation of yeah. how they're doing it? I would say it's more like that, yeah. Because they're not doing this in like your affluent cities. Like, sure, they're looking for people that are uneducated in the poor tax or the poor system who just need money, right? They're on survival mode. So that's, that's more, yeah, I definitely equate it to loan shark. Okay. Sure. So let me, let me, let me flip gears for you for a second. Uh, let's give a voice to the voiceless because let's be honest, uh, a lot of the stuff you and I are discussing right now, somebody with means and resource can write a book uh, and they can share their words and they can share their message. And that's important because I mean, a lot of people that are writing books like this are sharing the word and they're spreading people's experiences. Mm -hmm. Now this book centrally focuses on, um, on Cambodia and child, mm -hmm. uh, and child, uh, you know, exploitation. Uh, you're talking about something different that even if someone picked up that book, they're not going to get, I take it. You've spoken to people that were experiencing yeah. this life. Can you, can you give voice to some of those conversations, some of those experiences? What did you, what did you experience when you were speaking to uh, people that lived that life? Honestly, Neil, it is, like I was reflecting before our conversation today a bit about, I went through some old emails that I had sent my parents. And, you know, like when you're there working in an office setting, like, especially for me, like I'm reading reports. I was reading a lot of reports and going through information. And it was easy to go back to being a student. And when you're reading for classes, but when I went on a rescue operation and I meet the names that I've been reading, um, I, in particular, like there's a couple that I remember, there was a family who for 25 years, they had lived in a facility. Um, right. so this young girl and her husband, like they were young, 20, um, that's all they knew. And they just had a baby like eight days before we did this rescue operation. And I got to hold this brand new baby and I just wept because all I could think about is this little baby will hopefully never have to experience slavery in their lifetime again. So and what you're describing, so sorry, yeah. what you're describing is really analogous to what maybe many people think of in terms of slavery yeah. as we know it and talk about it, a multi-generational uh, experience mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. those that have taken the loan are not necessarily those that are still indentured. Would that be right. a fair characterization? Yeah. That's yeah. a very good summary. Yeah. So tell yeah. me, uh, so tell me a little bit more about these conversations. What's it like when you are involved? And in, is there like a moment when people have a, a realization that they've been living a life of subjugation and perhaps not knowing it? Or is it that they're well aware of their circumstances and the conditions and just have no path out? Which? Um, I would say both. So right. there's a couple that I remember where we did a rescue operation and the owner wasn't at the facility when we went and he came back and people trembled in fear. Like you, like to see the fear of another human being in North America, we see fear very different. Um, I mean, like let's say 30 people in front of you that are, their whole bodies are trembling. Their eyes are wide. They're terrified because this man has physically, sexually assaulted however many of the group um, and they are so afraid that he's going to stop whatever we are about to do. Um, that, that itself was like quite difficult to see. I've, I was also part of a time where we made a human chain around a group of people because an owner and his group of friends showed up and they were drunk and they were like very rambunctious and the people were so scared 
that me and a group of us, uh, we just encircled them and we just tried to keep reminding them, no, we, you are safe. Like we are here. We are going to make sure that we can get you to a safe place and get away from them. But now that I'm a police officer too, like it's an interesting time to be in those situations. Right. And unless you have ever experienced any kind of abuse in your life or any kind of a difficult circumstance where you've really feared another human being, um, it's hard to wrap your mind about like how some of these people are living on a daily basis. So 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 can I, can I, can I go there for a second? Uh, Let me, let me put, uh, let me put a question out that somebody might be thinking and you might not, it might not be a fair question. So feel free to tell me uh, if you think it isn't. I think some people listening, if you don't have a lot of experience with the kind of uh, sort of lived realities you're describing, might wonder why a critical mass of people cannot deal with a small number in power. You want to speak a little bit to that dynamic there that allows a smaller number of people to subjugate a larger group. Is that a fair question? Yeah. I'm just trying to think how to answer. Um, Honestly, uh, fear, power, and money. Like, you look through history, um, a lot of the big dictators, Right, um, that's how they control populations, right? And so, um, yeah, you. I mean, you can lead people to believe what you want them to believe. And if people don't have an awareness, if you don't know the other opportunities or other ways of life, and this is all you know, um, and you are just kept really enslaved. Like for these people in particular, they're kept hardly like sleeping, eating properly. Um, they're so physically exhausted, they can't really think about freedom. And right. for lots of them, they don't even know what that looks like, right? right. Um, some, of the, some of the cases that we did there came by word of mouth because oh. somebody got out and then they found out that their brother and his family were in another facility. And right. so they brought hope to people. Um, it, usually, though, it just takes one person. Like, quite often, we would have one person from a facility that would tell us, like, that would be brave enough to realize that this is not what he wanted for his wife, for his family, um, right. realize that something is wrong. Now, right. for some, it takes years to find someone that's going to believe them and help them. And right. for others, they are resourceful and, and resilient, and they keep going, right, to find the help they need. The goal is always to try and get more and more people feeling, uh, you know, empowered or at least reaching out to somebody who might be. Because yeah. otherwise, you just have a continuation of a cycle, right? So yeah. let me let me ask the second question then that might seem on the nose, but you know I'll, I'll put it out there. Anyways, I, I think someone's yeah. thinking, and my whole podcast is based on unpacking complexity. So I'm going to ask the questions. Uh, otherwise, we never get to it, right? I'm not interested in a nicely clean package show. So um, why is you, why do you have more success standing and making a human wall to protect mm-hmm. people? who also have mass. So what is it about you and your group? I'm using the you in the universal you here. What is it about you that can make a human wall actually functionally valuable? Why? Yeah, why? I mean, so the answer that I don't want to say, (laughs) but uh, one of the things in India specific was the fact that I was white. And uh, I worked for an NGO, an international NGO. Right. And there were a group of us, um, because we weren't uh, national staff, um, there's a bit of that international pressure that comes from right. other places. And so phone calls were made up the line at different times when needed, where we were in danger. 
people back off. Power listens. The last thing they want is an international incident to happen, right? So, so power and privilege used appropriately in this circumstance. You're looking at a set of circumstances where perhaps the color of your skin provides a level of gravitas to somebody who might ordinarily see someone else as being less than. Would that be yeah, fair? Yeah, and, that's uh, right. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, oh, did you go in with, uh, was there arm support? Was there, what kind of tactical support do you have? Or or is it this, is this literally volunteers going in doing their best? And how much cooperation do you have with local law enforcement? Yes. Yeah, so we always took local law enforcement with us and they always came armed. Um, but as far as like an organization, I mean, yeah, we're a civilian and we, we do a bit of training, but I'm not going to speak to the specifics just in case because you never know. But like we always had armed guards, whether or not they would at the end of the day defend me. I don't know. Right. <laughs> but sure. we hope. Yeah. 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 No, and uh, you know, I, I think I'm trying to highlight that these are difficult situations and it's sometimes I think, and I, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here, but uh, you know, the, the line is one thing. It's a, it's a physical barrier you formed, but really what you're bringing to that table is resource that otherwise yeah. might not be accessed. Uh, it is pressure that might otherwise not be influenced. And, and you know, it's it's relief for somebody that does not have a voice. Is that, yeah. you know? Yeah, I think that's all. Um, yeah. You know, we could we could probably talk about this for hours, and I don't mean to sell the subject short, but, you know, at some point, I, I, I think that my goal here is to introduce a topic, encourage mm-hmm. reading, encourage growth and knowledge. Uh, I think freedom is an interesting concept, and sometimes when you're born in countries where it's a guarantee, we take it for granted, and it's not a guarantee for everybody everywhere. So let's talk a little bit about, I have one tough question, and then we'll do a little bit of a wrap-up on this segment. I cited uh, a statistic from 2003, and uh, you said that that number is arguably higher. Mm -hmm. So given the awareness, given the work, uh, why are we seeing an increase and not a decrease? Why is this going in the wrong direction? In your opinion? For sure really good but difficult question to answer i think um part of it is like we used to think of drugs and guns as the big thing that big criminal enterprise right well there was a stat where in 2014 they believed that like the selling buying and selling of human beings would surpass that and here we are almost a decade later and absolutely um human beings at, at the root of it uh i believe that you can buy and sell another person and use them for however you're going to use them, unfortunately. Um, and the long-term dividend is there. And I don't really know how else to answer Let's change that a little bit. Um, like a drug disappears. A person, as long as you keep them alive, they can keep on working for you, right? And so why has our efforts not worked? I do believe that there are countries where we are seeing a turnaround. Um, okay. The problem is that, especially during hardship, like let's even talk COVID since that's the time, mm-hmm. um, lots of people are looking for other ways to make money. Right. And so we are finding here in Canada in general, um, from the stats that I've seen, like it's younger and younger with human trafficking. Um, right. And it, it's sometimes pierced. So the, the, I think also with the internet and all the information at people's fingertips, people, unfortunately, though it can be used for good, are using a lot of things for evil. Sure. And that's, well, I, I don't know at the end of the day, why well, I don't know yeah. going that way, but yeah. all right. How about this? Uh, if you were encouraging somebody else to get involved, why, why should people still be optimistic? 
Why should people still get involved and not be discouraged by the fact the numbers are trending in the wrong direction? How's that for a fair medical question? That's, that's good. Yeah. Um, honestly, I think it takes to meet one person to know you made the difference in one person's life. Uh, it makes all the years worth it. And for me, like there were a couple of kids when I was working in Asia that really made an impact on me. And just to know some of the history that they had gone through, where they had lived, but then to see their carefree smiles and resilient spirit, and to know that the trajectory of their lives were forever changed because of the work we were doing, keeps it going. And there's always, there's nothing better in the world than helping another human being. And that doesn't matter what, like what kind of circumstance, if you're a teacher, if you're a nurse, like all the things that people do every single day, um, when you make someone's life better, even if you just buy someone a coffee and like, they're just like, wow, thank you. Like, I just really needed that. Um, right. to, to be kind. Today's right. anti-bullying awareness day, right? So I'm wearing my pink shirt. That's why I'm wearing it underneath. Um, but that's a real big thing that human beings, uh, we need each other. If anything we've learned from COVID is we need connection. And I would say, um, it doesn't matter your walk of life. Uh, everyone needs to feel loved and seen. And so, yeah, if you're thinking about joining the fight or where do you get started, don't be discouraged. Um, there is a lot of people that are waiting for you in whatever capacity that you can fill. And everyone is unique. So we all have our own gifts. Neil and I are completely different people doing different things. But here we are after all these years reconnecting. And, and my time at Durham College was a, a big turning point for me. Like I didn't know at that point. Uh, whether I was going into international law or whatnot, but I did a practicum with the RCMP because of my time in India. And uh, it was really during that practicum that I was like, yes, I want to be a police officer. So every every person you come in contact with is going to uh, can encourage your, your trajectory in life. And a quote that I, leave, that I live by, and I'll leave it with you, is that you're going to be the same person you are today five years from now, except for the books you read, the places you go, and the people you meet. So do those things, educate yourself, and be good human beings. We need more of them. Yeah. And then be intrinsically motivated, right? I mean, you can't do this. You can't do this to put it on a resume. That's... No. All right. No, you sure can't. No. <laughs> you know, I, I, I keep coming back to that point. And I, I really think it's important that we don't lose sight of why we do what we do. And, uh, you know, if we are not intrinsically motivated to it, then I think... Uh, I don't mean to diminish the efforts of people that are doing it, uh, because they feel they must, because the work's still being done to a certain extent. Yeah. But I think that there's something to be said for being intrinsically motivated and sort of making a, an attempt at doing something in the world. Um, you know, obviously, we've been talking a little bit about uh, human trafficking, and specifically from a labor perspective, this is not uh, the, you know, human trafficking is not confined to labor. It includes uh, sexual exploitation. It includes a whole variety of things. It isn't limited to one country. This is not just a South Asian issue. We are, ha you know, you can look up the research and see uh, about incidences and prevalence rates of human trafficking across Europe, across North America. Mm -hmm. It is a yeah. global problem. And get informed because, uh, you know, mm -hmm. right here we are in Durham region in Ontario, Canada, for those of you that are outside. And uh, our major highway is considered one of the major sort of um, corridors where people are moved. And so that's right in your local backyard. You don't have to go across the sea. You should if you can. But even if you can't, not everyone can travel like Sharon did to India. But there are things you can do 
everywhere you live because community is where we begin and then we go from there. So, uh, Sharon, thank you for sharing that. I, it's a lot to unpack and I don't know, maybe at some point we'll talk a little bit more about it. Uh, but I appreciate you being here. Uh, when we are doing our next segment, we'll talk a little bit more about your transition to the role of policing. So thank you for being here. Uh, for everybody, you were listening to Complexity Unpacked with Professor Gonsalves. Uh, like I said before, if you're watching this, you're listening, you're watching it on my YouTube channel, Complexity Unpacked. The podcast is available on Spotify, Anchor, and uh, Apple Podcast. It's called Complexity Unpacked. And you can follow me on Instagram at, at Professor Gonsalves uh, with the hashtag Canine Professor. So uh, <laughs> thank you for listening. And we will be back with Sharon on uh, our next segment. Stay tuned and check out that episode. Bye, everyone. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you.